chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. I'm going to start off this morning by first off thanking everyone who read last week. Um, I don't mean to be this way, but if you missed last week, you missed a treat. All right, just saying. We, uh, we did something we've never done before in my time here at LSC. We read through the book of Revelation, the whole book, in one sitting last Sunday. And I think for folks, um, I got some emails this week. Some spoke, people spoke to me this morning, um, and it was powerful <coughs> to wrestle with, to grasp, to attempt to grasp, to just have your senses inundated by all that was going on in the book of Revelation in one sitting was, was very moving. If you have never done that, I would really challenge you, set aside some time. Takes about an hour and 15 minutes to read through it. Um, but it's so worth it. When we go into a book like this, we start diving into s- smaller sections of the book. And we look at small pieces of it. And, and, and when we're doing that, sometimes we can lose the greater picture. That this falls within a greater story. And we don't ever want to make a piece of revelation and take it out of context of the rest of the book, right? We want it, it, it's, it's one thematic, designed by God, cohesive, coherent book. And that book fits within the greater canon of scripture. And we see that in Genesis. When it, right there at the beginning, you've got God creating man and woman and him making it good. And it was lacking in nothing. And man rebels against God, sins against God. And and brothers and sisters, the state of the world that it's in today, it's our fault. It's not a politician's fault. It's not this. It's our fault. We are sinners born depraved, right? And we're living a broken and a fallen world. And, And the scriptures makes it very clear that in Adam we were all present. Like, if it had been any of us, we'd have not done it any differently. Okay? If you've ever thought of, maybe never said it out loud, like, I wish it would have been me back then, because things would be a lot different today. No, it wouldn't. It'd be the same. And God, in his great mercy and grace and love, in the midst of the curse, makes a promise. That the seed of Mary would be struck by struck is that the right word 
stricken. There we go. My Nebraska education is coming out there a little bit. Um, stricken. But this one, the seed of Mary, the seed of Eve, would crush the head of the serpent. The death blow wasn't dealt when Jesus got up and walked out of the grave. The death blow was found in the book of Revelation. When that serpent, for all time, is cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. And the new heavens and the new earth are made. That's the death blow. That's the finality. We know that that's coming because of the cross, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have great confidence and hope in the coming glory, but we're not there yet. We live in the fallen state of this world. This book is the book of great hope for those who are believers. Great hope. We're going to dive into this this morning. I don't, my iPad's not been working lately, so whoever's on the you know, computer can, can move our slides forward. Before we can dive into the text this morning of Revelation 1, 1 to 3, you're like three verses. Boy, we're going to be at this for a while. Yeah, we are. Um, in fact, I emailed the elders this week and I said, you know, we said we're going to be done with Revelation by Easter. Scratch that. <laughs> we're going to be done with Revelation June 28th, okay? That, that's when we're going to be done with it. And it's, it's kind of planned out. And, and, and so we're, we're excited about that to spend a little bit more time in this book. But to, before we can even dive into the text, we need to kind of unpack this a little bit. Um, because Revelation is a book that we all bring baggage to. <laughs> we've seen a movie about it. Or we've read a book about it. Um, we've, we've, we've heard sermons on it. Uh, you know, the whole Left Behind series. How many of you guys read through Left Behind series? You know, I'm not dissing Left Behind, but because you've read Left Behind, you're bringing all those things and you, you've got everything planned out, laid out in your head by this, by this Left Behind series. And, and, and so you're bringing all that to this book, right? Um, if you've watched a really bad movie on it, right? Like, I, I was five years old. And there was this, oh, I can't even remember the name of the series now. The Mark of the Beast series. Some of you have been in church for a long time might have heard those series. Like, five years old. Like, I had nightmares for months. Like, about these things. And so I've had a really tainted view of Revelation instead of with great hope and expectation and rejoicing studying this book. A lot of fear. A lot of fear. And so we bring baggage to this book. And it is my prayer for you and my prayer for myself that we, we, we leave the baggage at the door and we come in here with open hearts and minds to read the text and study the text for what it says. And we, we've got views on, on rapture. We've got views on the millennium. We've got all these things we bring to the table. And we're going to have to kind of wrestle with and be honest with ourselves and say, instead of looking at it through an appropriate lens, which we're going to talk about here in a moment, we've looked at it through these other lenses that we, we bring from our background. Okay, so the first lens that I would love for you to think about is when we look at the book of Revelation, we need to understand as a great German term, Sitzimlieben, Sitzimlieben, 
which means basically the situation and the setting in which the book was written. Revelation was written by a real person to a real people in a real setting. And if we're really going to dive at what the book means, we can't take this book and bring it to the year 2020 and say, well, the year 2020 defines what it means. No, we need to dive back to who it was written to, why it was written, what's the Sitzim Lieben of Revelation? You like that? Can we say Sitzim Lieben with me? Sitzim Lieben. There we go. You learned some German today. Okay. You're one step closer to your doctorates in theology. Fantastic. All right. So who? Who wrote this book? Throw it out. Who wrote? John. Which John? The Revelator. That, that's helpful. Okay. That's really helpful. The Revelator. It's like that Terminator, but the Revelator. Oh my gosh. We're going to go down a rabbit trail. John the Apostle, right? Part of the inner circle of Jesus. James, John, Peter. But John also has a special identifier. The beloved disciple. In John chapter 21, after restoring Peter, Jesus turns to him and says, you know, you clothe yourself, you dress yourself, but there's going to come a day when somebody's going to clothe you in things you don't want to be clothed in and be led away to a place you don't want to go. Peter turns and looks at John and says, what about that guy? Jesus says, you know, don't worry about him. If I want him to tarry until I return, he will. Now, it's very interesting that John of the apostles, according to the history of the church, they hold that John lived the longest. John being identified as the beloved disciple and the author, the Holy One, the Holy Spirit spoke through to write Revelation is, I think, very significant and something we shouldn't miss. If you walk away from Revelation with this feeling of anger or frustration and fear, but not of love, then I think you miss the author and what he's trying to teach us about God. You see, Jesus is a God of love. And the disciple who loved and was very intimate with Jesus writes this book about Jesus. And so this book carries with it strong emotion, strong passion. Let it hit your senses. When it describes things like minerals and, and different diamonds and different emeralds, see them glitter. When you hear thundering noises, hear the thunder. When, you, when it talks of brimstone and other things, smell the sulfur. This is a book that should just hit your senses all over the place. And the beloved disciple is putting this grand picture on display for us to see about Jesus. So who is the author? So when we're looking at this, we're looking about this through the lens of John being the writer of this book. So go read the Gospel of John. Go read the epistles of John, John 1, 2, and 3. Read them as you go through this. Hear this. Learn to hear from John and hear the way in which John speaks. It's very interesting the way the Bible is written. God used men as instruments. The Holy Spirit speaks the word into the instrument, and the instrument then plays the note. 
Now, does a French horn sound the same as a trombone? It sounds different. Same note. When, when, when Curtis is up here playing on the bass and Ethan's on the electric guitar, same note, but it sure sounds different, doesn't it? Well, when God speaks through his instruments, the disciples, the apostles, to write his books down, they come out different. The language of Greek is different. The message of God remains unchanged, but it comes out in a different sound. And so it's important for us as we look at this, we look at that he is the the author, and it's very early attestation. You like that word? Very early attested that John was the author. The early church fathers, uh, Justin Martyr, uh, uh, Justin Martyr, Arrhenius, Clement of Alexandria, Hippolytus, Origen, all said that John was the author. And it's very few that actually oppose John as the author of Revelation. For who? Who was this book written to? The seven churches. Of Asia Minor. And this is the intended audience, the immediate audience. Now, is it for all churches, all of the church of all time? Absolutely. But the intended audience, when John was writing, when he had this in mind to them, he's writing this book for these people. Early church historians believe that this was fitting because John was seen as the apostle that would have overseen these churches. These were his churches, his oversight to them. And then he speaks to them. He speaks to them with the authority of one who is in position over them. What is this book about? It's about apocalypse and prophecy. We're not used to reading apocalypse and prophecy. We're just not. If you come from a more of a Hebrew or Jewish background, you would be more used to or accustomed to it. But we're not. We're good Greek thinkers. We are linear thinkers. We want to define everything. We want to have a clear understanding. And we want to be able to explain everything. Get over it. Because there's things in this book we will not be able to fully explain. Why? Because if God wanted us to fully understand it, he would have written it in such a way that we would have fully understood it. So you're going to live in some tension in this book. Praise be to God. Okay, so we're going to get over ourselves a little bit. This is linear thinkers. So apocalypse, what is the apocalypse? The, po- the nature of ap- apocalyptic literature is distinguished by a threefold mixture. Hiddenness, vast upheaval, and decisive divine action. Hiddenness. Vast upheaval and decisive divine action. Prophecy is theological, evangelistic, and ethical by nature. And it intends to call people to repentance. The prophetic message emphasizes the decision-making freedom of the people before God. Whereas the apocalyptic message emphasizes the freedom of God. I want you to hear that. God is free to act within his nature, and does so in the book of Revelation. Prophecy brings out the idea, what do we do with this? The book of Revelation is going to be pinned on this teetering point between compromise and faithfulness. Compromise and faithfulness. Throughout the book, we're going to see 
these two different positions being brought forth. When? When was this book? Two different time frames are proposed. The first is 68 to 72 AD, the reign of Nero. The second is Domitian, who reigned in 96 to 98 AD. If it was 96 to 98 AD, it meant John lived a very, very long life. Assuming that John would have been about 20 years old, possibly when Christ called him to be a disciple, that would make him 90 some years old by this time. It's possible. I actually think I would lean towards, again, 75, 25, 75%, sure, 25% if someone gave me a really good argument, that I could go the other way, that it's the later time frame. And there's several different reasons for that. We won't get into all those, but one of them is where he was sent to on the Isle of Patmos. And when they say the Isle of Patmos was actually used to be a prison or a place of desertion, and when John was sent there. And so that takes me to where? Where was he sent? The Isle of Patmos is 7.5 mile island by 6 mile island. It's, it was a treeless, volcanic formed island. It would not have been a pleasant place to remain. It would have been desolate. This is where John was exiled to. But notice how God took John away from everything so John could hear God very, very clearly. And so that God could speak to John. Now, I don't think that's the purpose of this book, but it is a great lesson to us. If we ever are sitting there struggling, wondering why am I not hearing from God, but you never get away and spend time alone with him, no wonder. And when I talk about getting away, I'm not talking about like five minutes in the morning before you head off to work or head off to do your favorite hobby or do grocery shopping or do whatever your day's on your schedule for that day. I am talking, when was the last time you took a 24-hour period or longer and got away with your God? No phones, no computers, no televisions, no other people but by yourself with God. Now, I'm not going to ask you how many of that terrifies you. I hope it doesn't. But for some of you, the thought of that and a 24-hour period alone with God would terrify you. The most radically changing thing I have felt in a, in a very long time, including my deployment to Iraq and all those things, was last February when I got away with God for a week in a monastery and I was alone with God no cell phones no computers my Bible and some spiritual books to read in a journal and God gave me the ability to fast for a week with him you want to hear from God you want God to invade your heart give you direction give you discernment understanding get alone with him Spend time with him. It's not a spiritual gift. Why? 
why is answered in the very first words of this book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is not about naming dates. This book isn't about supporting a pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib, pre-mill, ah-mill, mid-mill, point of rapture or end times. This book is about Jesus. This is the revelation of Jesus. And so if we find ourselves anywhere else in the midst of this book, then we've missed the point. It's about Jesus. He is both the object of the book and he is both the subject of the book. He is the revealer of the revelation of God and the revelation of God is Jesus. Nice fancy term for that. This is a plenary genitive. You're going to forget that in a second. But it's so weird in the Bible and it's so weird in literature to have both clearly objective and subjective clearly being pointed about a genitive within this book, meaning that this is revelation of Jesus Christ. It's about him and it's about him revealing himself in it. This is so amazing that this book is about Jesus Christ. How do we interpret this book? This is where it gets fun. There are four different views. And I'm going to briefly go through them. There's the preterist view, which sees the book as having already been fulfilled by AD 312. So there's a view that the book of Revelation has been completely fulfilled already in the history of the world. Okay? And you could sit here and say, oh, that's bonkers, oh, that's bogus, like, no, no, no. Listen, a person can believe that view and still be a Christian. So let's, let's cling to that, okay? You can still believe that view and see that view and still be a Christian. You may believe that view here this morning, and I hope to challenge you in that view just like I hope you challenge me in my view because that's what we as Christians do. We challenge each other so our faith grows deeper. There's the historical school, which sees the book as a panorama of the history of the church from the days of John to the end of the age. Okay? There's the idealist school, which sees the book as a conflict of the age-long principles of good and evil with non-historic elements. So the historical school says we're going to take more of an allegorical approach, and we're going to see this more of these stories being told. They're not actual factual events that are going to take place, but more of a story being told um, so that we might understand the tension. And then you've got the idealist school, which sees this as a, is this a conflict of principles of an age long that has been going on from the beginning of the world till the end of the world. It's not really a book about the end of the world. Then there's the futurist school, which sees the book from chapters four on as proclaiming the prophecies yet to be filled. That's the position I'm going to take here. Okay? So I'm going to come at it from that perspective, that these are things that are yet to be fulfilled. Okay? So, if you disagree with me on that, great. We can have great discussions about it. I'd love to have those discussions throughout this book, and so we can present some different views as we go through it, which is good for us to wrestle with. All right. Longest introduction I've ever done to any book yet. Okay? But it's, it, it's important. Okay? John wrote this book either right before or, right after, or, or later after the fall, but both times that are mentioned are extreme times of persecution for the church. 
and that's really important as we look at this book. Nero persecuting Christians, taking crucifying Christians, tarring them, lighting them on fire, ushering Christian children into the Colosseum, dressed in sheep's clothing, wild animals tearing them apart. Domitian attempting to destroy any, any remnants of the Christian faith, burning texts, like both people, wicked, evil men, both times extreme persecution for the church. Really bad days. Yet the church flourished and the church grew during both these periods. The revelation of God went forth. So Revelation chapter 1. The revelation that God gave to him. So if you want to go ahead and go to the next slide. Thanks, Case. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave to him. To show his servants what must happen very soon. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Matthew 24, 36 says this, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. We see within the Godhead perfect submission. Jesus isn't less knowledgeable, isn't less powerful than the Father. And the Spirit isn't less knowledgeable, less powerful than the Spirit, than the Son and the Father. One God, three persons working in a complete harmony within the Trinity, okay? And that's really important for you to understand. Jesus says, hey, Father, it's not for me to know yet. Okay, great. And that doesn't sound like us very well, does it? But Jesus is so fine with it. That at this point in time when God says, okay, it's time for you to return. God is going, the God the Father is going to turn to God the Son and say, it's time. And the God the Son is say, yes, Father. And he's going to go and he's going to fulfill the end of days. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave to him, the beautiful trinity at work within the end days, to show his servants, don't miss this, the purpose of this revelation. Why study the book of Revelation? To show his servants what must happen very soon. These seem to say to me, this is more than just a book of allegory or of principles but rather there seems to be some facts that are going to be revealed for the followers of Jesus Christ so that we may know and discern the times that we live in and be faithful followers of Jesus Christ that we might endure to the end so that is for our good that we may know him this is the rest of the story. We've got the first coming of Jesus Christ that was predicted in the Old Testament. Lots and lots of prophecy about Jesus Christ's first coming. Jesus Christ comes. He lives the perfect life. He dies upon the cross. He rises on the, from the third day. ascends into heaven. is seated at the right hand of the Father. The church is then instruction on how to live, but amidst that instruction on how to live contains more prophecy about the end of days of Jesus' second coming. Jesus is coming back. It's not over yet. It's not over. For the believers, this is the only hell we will ever know. Heaven's coming. Heaven's coming. And so it's to show his servants what must happen very soon. 
And he made it known by sending an angel to his servant. And we know who his servant is, John. God wants, you can go to the next slide here, Casey. God wants his followers to be informed. You got to understand, this is what separates, one of the things that separates Christianity from all other religions in the world. God has revealed himself to us so that we might worship him and understand him correctly. We don't have to guess how to worship God. We don't have to guess about who God is. God has revealed himself to us through the scriptures so that we might know him. And we don't have to guess about the end times. Like, God is going to reveal to us what we need to know so that we will be faithful followers, not compromising during the end of days. And we can sit here and arm wrestle over whether the church is going to be present during the tribulation or not, during the last times, and we can go back and forth on this. This is where I land. I pray that the church is gone. Because my understanding of this book, it is horrific. This is God's wrath being poured out for sin upon the earth and mankind. But the book of Revelation is going to make it very clear that there are martyrs during this time frame. There are people who believe in Jesus who are going to die during the tribulation. Now, are those people that come to faith during the tribulation, are those people who were faithful people before and came into the tribulation? We can arm wrestle over that. I pray God takes his church home. But I'll tell you this, the church don't deserve it. The church has done nothing to earn to be rescued before the tribulation. If God chooses to take the church out, it's by God's grace. Okay? The church has done nothing to earn to be raptured before the end times. Okay? But I also want to be here. What if my kids find themselves in the midst of the tribulation? But I have preached with such dogmatism of a pre-tribulational rapture that their faith would become bankrupt if they find themselves in the midst of it. So I want us to listen, to read, to hear, and to obey the words of this book. So that they might know their God is in the midst of winning. Okay? So let's not be so dogmatic on one direction or the other that we can injure each other's faith. Can we have that kind of freedom as we go through this book? That's going to be tension. And I know I was raised in a diehard pre-trib, pre-mill. Like, like I watch people getting fights over it. We can't be friends with those Presbyterians over there because doggone, they don't believe in that pre-trib, pre-mill rapture stuff. So we can't even have dinner with them. Seriously, what in the world is that? So let's have some freedom here. To wrestle with this together. But understand 1 Thessalonians 4.13. But we do not want you to be uninformed. Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonians. But others about those who are asleep. That you may not grieve as others do. Who have no hope. Listen. No matter where we find ourselves during these last days. We are not to be like the unbelieving world that does not have hope. That even if we find ourselves in the midst of the tribulation period. Jesus Christ is in the midst of winning. And it may cost us our lives. We may be a martyr for the faith. 
And it's okay. Because Jesus Christ is in the midst of winning. And we have hope. So if your view of revelation ever leads you to a place of unhope, then you've missed the point. For the child of God, this book is filled with hope. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, and who bore witness then to the word of God. Oh my goodness. Those who want to argue against the John, I mean, that statement right there, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the, and the word was with, and the word was, amen. Wow. Talk about your all-time links back to John being the author, right? Right here he says, who then bore witness to the word of God. Who's the word of God? Jesus. So the angel is bearing witness to John about, oh, good, good. Amen, unless it's squirrel, then it's squirrel. Um, And the testimony of Jesus Christ as much as he saw. What is the response then supposed to be to this revelation? Blessed. Now, some of your texts may read happy. How many of your texts read happy there? Maybe he does. Happy is the one. Blessed is the one. In the old... We're going to need to understand about the book of Revelation is Hebrews has the most quotes, direct quotes from the book or the Old Testament. Revelations has the most allusions to the Old Testament of any book in the New Testament. So many allusions, so many prophetic allusions reaching back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there are two words for blessed. There's Barak and there's Ashar. Barak means to kneel or bow down. The second means to find the right pathway in the face of false pathways. Let me read that to you again. Ashar means to find the right pathway in the face of false pathways. In this book, we're going to discover the ultimate false and a false Messiah and a false prophet. Blessed is the one that in the midst of false pathways knows the right pathway and follows it. And so what is it to to, to choose that right pathway? The one that reads and hears these words. And the idea behind these words is not just reading for the sake of reading. It's not grabbing one of your algebra textbooks unless you're like the kid that loves math, who thinks that, wow, he gets into it, like gets excited and like, wow, that's fantastic. Most of us would pick up an algebra textbook and read it like, oh, I got to get this assignment done and we're getting through this and hopefully we'll forget this by tomorrow, okay? That's not the reading that's being talked about. It's this idea of reading and understanding. It's reading for the sake of wanting it to change our lives. It's hearing it so that we might take it in and it radically alter us. Reading to change our minds, hearing to change our hearts. That's what he, blessed is the person that does that. Because they'll walk that right path because their mind's been changed by the word and their heart's been changed by the word. And if their mind and heart are changed by the word, then they're going to be able to walk the pathway in the midst of false things that will terrify us. Listen, this book is going to talk about not being able to purchase food unless you've got this certain mark. 
What greater justification for, for taking the mark than food, the basic subsidies of life? It's tricky. It's nasty. It's deceiving. But the one who reads and the one who hears will not be deceived. They'll be blessed because they'll be able to walk that right pathway in the midst of false ones. Blessed is the one who reads and hears these words of prophecy and keeps. Quite literally, the term here is guard, protect these things written in it, for the time is near. Let me tell you something. It's been a couple thousand years, right? We're getting close to 2,000 years since these words were written. God can return. And I've had people argue with me over this. There, there are things in Scripture that need to be fulfilled. There are things that you have identified in Scripture that need to be fulfilled. But when this text, when you got the Apostle Paul thinking that Jesus is coming back in his own lifetime... I think we have, to, we have to have the idea that Christ's return is imminent. It can happen at any moment. And when it, if and when it, I mean, when it does, not if, when it does, God will reveal to us where we were wrong in understanding. Because he's going to be perfect in his return. But I believe the return of Christ is near. It's, it's imminent. And so God is calling us to stand guard and protect this book, these words, what does that mean? That we, we have a Bible up here and Curtis is going to come back next week with a shotgun or an AR and he's going to stand here next to the book. Is that what's being talked about here? No. 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 <coughs> Parents, do you guard and protect your children? How? Not a trick question. How do we guard and protect our kids? We always, as dads, I always joke around, I'm so glad I've got two big boys, right? Two strong sons for the younger sisters that when those boys start coming over to date the I'm just going to have the boys answer the door, right? <laughs> I won't have to have a gun. Again, that's not what's being talked about. The way we guard and the way we protect is to teach these things to our children so that as they grow, as they understand them, that we talk about these things. They're a part of our regular part of our conversation. We believe them. They're changing us. And that we hold these things dear to us. And we speak of them. I mean, it's sad to say that the Revelation is probably one of the fewest books preached out of, eh, probably First Chronicles or Second Chronicles, maybe preached that. But Revelation is not just taught out of that much because it, it comes with all this other stuff and understanding and it's, it's a hard book to teach through. But according to this book, we got to read it, we got to hear it, and we got to guard it. But guard it in such a way, God's, God's going to make sure that this book is preserved. Okay. What we have to is make sure that this book is preserved in our hearts and in our minds. We got to teach our kids about this book. Do your kids know that sin will be dealt with in the worst of ways? That God is going to slaughter 
by the millions, those that do not believe, and that God is just in doing so. Guard and protect your kids. How do you begin to have conversations with your kids about that? What does it look like to to create within our kids a sense of urgency that there are people who are dying and going to hell and that who are people that are not living for Jesus Christ and and walking alongside of kids and not standing in judgment nor not standing in condemnation over them, but rather being voices of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we know with confidence that this world's going to end and that we live for eternity. Do our kids understand that toys don't matter? Video games don't matter. That the guy who dies with the most toys doesn't win. He just dies. It's about whether he knew Jesus Christ or not. That's what matters is living for him. These are the conversations we got to have with our kids we got to teach them. we got to guard them. we got to instruct them. And we ourselves have to guard our own hearts that this world doesn't become our home. God is going to destroy it all someday. Your house, your car, your boats, your checking accounts, your retirement accounts, your job description. Like it's all going to burn someday. The only thing that's going to be left are the things that we've done for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what's going to be left. That's why this book is so important for us to understand that the revelation of God changes our hearts and minds so that we understand we are his and this isn't home. Welcome to Revelation. Father God, thank you. Thank you, God, that you're teaching us through this book. And may this book, when we read it, when we hear it, may it change our minds, may it change our hearts, may you transform us, as in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, transform us by the renewing of our minds. That we might see the holiness of God and be in awe of it and worship him for it. That there is no sin in our God. There is no wickedness in our God. There is no brokenness. There is no halfway with our God. For he is fully God. And God, you are holy. As the angels say so often in this book, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I pray we might discover in our journey through Revelation why those words are so significant, why those words are ringing through the heavens right now. And we might desire, thirst for the holiness of our God. Lord God, may we, as we journey through this book, be so honest with ourselves about our, our perspective of the king and be really honest with ourselves about do we desire the king to return? What are the things of this world that we're worshiping and we're holding on to where we have begun to compromise versus being faithful? May we teach our children, may we teach our grandchildren that this book is, is amazing and it's beautiful 
for those who are children of God and for those that are not. It's terrifying. And rightly so. For the king will return. And he will establish the new heavens and the new earth. There will be a marriage feast with, the, with Jesus Christ unlike ever seen before. Lord God, remind us that we're not home. Remind us that this world isn't what we're living for. And whatever you call us to do, may we do so with the desire to worship you and not this world. In Jesus' name we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. At this time, we're going to have our, if you're visiting with us, we, do, we take time right now to talk about how God is the hero of our story. And God does amazing things in our lives throughout the week. And we would love to hear from you right now and how God has been the hero of your story this week. All right, John. Thank you, Scott. Uh, it's uh, astounding. We didn't get sermon chat this week, um, and we had life group on Friday night, and the Lord put on my heart that we just needed to read about uh, Revelations 1, 1 through 3, and talk about the introduction of who this book is about, and um, that it's about Jesus, and that we're blessed in the study of it, and I just uh, am amazed to get here this morning and see Scott focusing in on just one through three. That was truly a blessing for me, just a reaffirmation that God is amongst us and he's guiding and directing our hearts in unity. So I just give him praise for that. Uh, <clears throat> this week I had a doctor appointment and uh, I have labored hard, strived hard for years to try and regulate my blood sugar without medication, and I've gotten to a point now where I can't, and uh, it's awesome because God has given man the technology and the ability to create insulin that regulates that which we can't on our own, and uh, as my body continues to fail, I know this isn't my home, and uh, my eternity isn't in this. It's with Jesus Christ. So it's a challenge, but it's also a blessing to know that God has numbered our days and he's providing for us and sustaining us according to his good will and that the most important thing that we can do in this life is make a decision about who Jesus is and it governs the outcome of the rest of our eternity. So I just give him glory for that. All right, Chris. You want to go your... Yeah. <coughs> you know, when we moved here a couple of years ago, Colleen was familiar with this area, but I wasn't. And, uh, we were invited here by Uncle Dwight and... and, and uh, also, sweet wife, Rolanda, thank you, God, for them. 
And we met everybody here. But then something happened. We found our brother Dave Harkey and Peggy would visit Maui. And then last time they were there, they visited our church on Maui. It was a real blessing. But this morning, Aiko, I'm sorry, I'm going to embarrass you. But we met Aiko at Safeway. She's from Hawaii. Her family are here. Sorry to embarrass you. She's over there. But we are grateful. Brother Dave and Peggy are going back to Maui here shortly. He just told me. And we got God's all over the place. He's got things working. And one day seeing Aiko in Walmart really blessed my heart because I didn't feel so, you know, alone calling. This was her home, like I said. But for me, it was a little bit different. So sorry to embarrass you, Aiko. You and your sister and your family. God bless you so much for being here. It's good to see you. Um, and, and, and Brother Dave, say hello to our family back in Maui when you get there, if you will. But his confirmation's all over the place. And I thank God for that. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Good morning, everybody. My name is Linda Tate, and I live up at Heritage Heights. And I've always been a non-Christian until I was blind from a stroke. And the work that God has done in my life and the people that has prayed for me, two years ago, next month, I got my sight back. And with, you know, I listened to Dr. or Pastor Scott here, and, you know, a lot of the things that he has said has really touched my heart. And I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, but you guys are just like the rest of us. You know, God works in your lives the same way as he does theirs. And I have seen here this morning, you know, different people, that Revelations is, you know, that's a book that I've always been fascinated with because I know there's a second coming. Amen. And to, to have the time to spend with you guys and to go through this book is really touching me. And I hope and I pray that each and every one of you get out of it what I am going to get out of Amen. it. And I thank you very much for all of your love for all of us. Thank you. Amen. 